Section 15 of Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume 1, by Elbert Hubbard. Jonathan Swift, Part 2. Perhaps no one who has written of Swift knew him so well as Delaney, and this writer, who seems to have possessed a judicial quality far beyond most men, has told us that Swift was moral in conduct to the point of asceticism. His deportment was grave and dignified, and his duties as a priest were always performed with exemplary diligence. He visited the sick regularly, administered the sacraments, and was never known to absent himself from morning prayers. When Harley was Lord Treasurer, Swift seems to have been on the topmost crest of the wave of popularity. Invitations from nobility flowed in upon him. Beautiful women deigned to go in search of his society. Royalty recognized him, and yet all this time he was only a country priest with a liking for literature. Collins tells us that the reason for his popularity is plain. Swift was one of the kings of the earth, like Pope Innocent III, like Chatham. He was one to whom the world involuntarily pays tribute. His will was a will of adamant, his intellect so keen that it impressed everyone who approached him, his temper singularly stern, dauntless, and haughty, but his wit was never filled with gaiety. He was never known to laugh. Amidst the wildest uproar that his sallies caused, he would sit with face austere, unmoved. Personally, Swift was a gentleman. When he was scurrilous, abusive, ribald, malicious, it was anonymously. Is this to his credit? I should not say so, but if a man is indecent, and he hides behind a nom de plume, it is at least presumptive proof that he's not dead to shame. Leslie Stephan tells us that Swift was a churchman to the backbone. No man who is a churchman to the backbone is ever very pious. The spirit maketh alive, but the letter killeth. One looks in vain for traces of spirituality in the dean. His sermons are models of churchly commonplace and full of the stock phrases of a formal religion. He never bursts into flame. Yet he most thoroughly and sincerely believed in religion. I believe in religion. It keeps the masses in check. And then I uphold Christianity, because if it is abolished, the stability of the church might be endangered, he said. Philip asked the eunuch a needless question when he inquired, Understandest thou what thou readest? No one so poorly sexed as Swift can comprehend spiritual truth. Spirituality and sexuality are elements that are never separated. Swift was as incapable of spirituality as he was of the grand passion. The dean had affection. He was a warm friend. He was capable even of a degree of love. But his sexual and spiritual nature was so cold and calculating that he did not hesitate to sacrifice love to churchly ambition. He argued that the celibacy of the Catholic clergy is a wise expediency. The bachelor physician and the unmarried priest have an influence among gentle womankind, young or old, married or single, that a benedict 
can never hope for. Why this is so might be difficult to explain, but discerning men know the fact. In truth, when a priest marries, he should at once take a new charge, for if he remains with his old flock, a goodly number of his lady parishioners, in ages varying from seventeen to seventy, will with fierce indignation rend his reputation. Swift was as wise as a serpent, but not always as harmless as a dove. He was making every effort to secure his mitre and crozier. He had many women friends in London and elsewhere who had influence. Rather than run the risk of losing this influence, he never acknowledged Stella as his wife. Choosing fame rather than love, he withered at the heart, then died at the top. The life of every man is a seamless garment, its woof his thoughts, its warp his deeds. When for him the roaring loom of time stops and the thread is broken, foolish people sometimes point to certain spots in the robe and say, Oh, why did he not leave that out? Not knowing that every action of man is a sequence from off fate's spindle. Let us accept the work of genius as we find it, not bemoaning because it is not better, but giving thanks because it is so good. Well-fed, rollicking priest is Father O'Toole of Dublin, with a big round face, a double chin, and a brogue that you can cut with a knife. My letter of introduction from Monsignor Satoli caused him at once to bring in a large, suspicious black bottle and two glasses. Then we talked. Talked of Ireland's wrongs and women's rights, and of all the Irishmen in America whom I was supposed to know. We spoke of the illustrious Irishman who had passed on, and I mentioned a name that caused the Holy Father to spring from his chair in indignation. Swift, is it? Swift? No, me lad, don't go near him. He was the devil's own, the very whoosht that ever followed the swish of a petticoat. No, no, if ye go to his grave, it'll bring ye bad luck for a year. It's Tom Moore ye want. Tom was the boy, ah, now, and it's myself that'll go with ye. And so the reverend father put on a long black coat and his St. Patrick's Day hat, and we started. We were met at the gate by a delegation of Spalpines that had located me on the inside of the house and were lying in wait. All American travelers in Ireland are supposed to be millionaires, and this may possibly explain the lavish attention that is often tendered them. At any rate, various members of the delegation wished long life to the elegant American gentleman, and hinted in terms unmistakable that pence would be acceptable. The Holy Father applied his cane vigorously to the ragged rears of the more presumptuous, and bade them be gone, but still they followed and pressed close about. Here, I'll show you how to get rid of the dirty gang, said His Holiness. Have ye a penny? I don't know. I produced a handful of small change, which the father immediately took, and tossed into the street. Instantly there was a heterogeneous mass of young Hibernians piled up in the dirt in a grand struggle for spoils. It reminded me of football incidents I had seen at Fair Harvard. In the meantime we escaped down a convenient alley and crossed the river Liffey to Old Dublin. Inside the walls of the old city, through crooked lanes and winding streets that here and there showed signs of departed gentility, where now was only squalor, want, and vice, until we came to number twelve Angier Street. 
a quaint three-story brick building now used as a public in the wall above the door is a marble slab with this inscription here was born thomas moore on the 28th day of may 1778 above this in a niche is a bust of the poet tom's father was a worthy greengrocer who according to the author of lala rook always gave good measure and full count it was ever a cause of regret to the elder moore that his son did not show sufficient capacity to be trusted safely with the business the upper rooms of the house were shown to us by an obliging landlady father o'toole had been here before and led the way to a snug little chamber and explained that in this room the future poet of ireland was found under one of his father's cabbage leaves we descended to the neat little bar-room with its sanded floor and polished glassware and shining brass the holy father ordered arf and arf at my expense and recited one of moore's ballads the landlady then gave us byron's here's a health to thee tom moore a neighbor came in then we had more ballads more arf and arf a selection from lala rook and various tales of the poet's early life which possibly would be hard to verify and as the tumult raged the smoke of battle gave me opportunity to slip away i crossed the street turned down one block and entered st patrick's cathedral great roomy gloomy solemn temple where the rumble of city traffic is deadened to a faint hum without the world's unceasing noises rise turmoil disquietude and busy fears within there are the sounds of other years thoughts full of prayer and solemn harmonies which imitate on earth the peaceful skies other worshippers were there standing beside a great stone pillar i could make them out kneeling on the tiled floor gradually my eyes became accustomed to the subdued light and right at my feet i saw a large brass plate set in the floor and on it only this swift died october nineteenth seventeen forty five aged seventy eight on the wall near is a bronze tablet the inscription of which in latin was dictated by swift himself here lies the body of jonathan swift dean of this cathedral where fierce indignation can no longer rend his heart go wayfarer and imitate if thou canst one who as far as in him lay was an earnest champion of liberty above this is a fine bust of the dean and to the right is another tablet underneath lie interred the mortal remains of mrs hester johnson better known to the world as stella under which she is celebrated in the writings of dr jonathan swift dean of this cathedral she was a person of extraordinary endowments and accomplishments in body mind and behavior justly admired and respected by all who knew her on account of her eminent virtues as well as for her great natural and acquired perfections these were suffering souls and great would they have been so great had they not suffered who can tell were the waters troubled in order that they might heal the people did swift misuse this excellent woman is a question that has been asked and answered again and again a great author had written a woman a tender noble excellent woman has a dog's heart she licks the hand that strikes her and wrong nor cruelty 
nor injustice nor disloyalty can cause her to turn death in pity took stella first took her in the loyalty of love and the fullness of faith from a world which for love has little recompense and for faith small fulfillment stella was buried by torchlight at midnight on the thirtieth day of january seventeen hundred twenty eight swift was sick at the time and wrote in his journal this is the night of her funeral and i am removed to another apartment that i may not see the light in the church which is just over against my window but in his imagination he saw the gleaming torches as their dull light shone through the colored windows and he said they will soon do as much for me but seventeen years came crawling by before the torches flared smoked and gleamed as the mourners chanted a requiem and the clods fell on the coffin and their echoes intermingled with the solemn voice of the priest as he said dust to dust ashes to ashes in eighteen hundred thirty five the graves were opened and casts taken of the skulls the top of swift's skull had been sawed off at the autopsy and a bottle in which was a parchment setting forth the facts were inserted in the head that had conceived gulliver's travels i examined the casts the woman's head is square and shapely swift's head is a refutation of phrenology being small sloping and ordinary the bones of swift and stella were placed in one coffin and now rest under three feet of concrete beneath the floor of st patrick's so sleep the lovers joined in death end of jonathan swift